This is just a quick disclaimer. There are some slight adult themes in this episode, and I know some people listen to this with their children. On the discussion post on the website, which is linked in the show notes, I put a brief explanation of the adult themes, so you can decide whether or not you want your children to listen to it. This week, on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're continuing the legend of King Arthur. You'll see why you really shouldn't trust a daycare run by King Arthur and Merlin, and you also won't look at giraffes the same way again after you learn of their unsavory origins. Then, on the Creature of the Week, you want to make sure you look up occasionally when you're walking around Malaysia at night, or else you run the risk of getting a face full of poisonous organs. This is the Myths and Legends Podcast, Episode 27B, Mayday. This is a podcast where I tell stories from folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you may not have heard, but really should. So before this episode starts, I just want to make a quick announcement. I started this podcast about 10 months ago as a hobby, and it's grown in a way I honestly never thought possible. I love doing it, and it's grown to the point where it takes up about as much time as a full-time job. And, amazingly, this podcast can now be my full-time job with the addition of ads in the show. But yeah, I can now be a full-time podcaster, which is incredible. For my family and me, being full-time requires a stable monthly income, so ads will start next week, and I'll make them interesting and worth listening to. This will let the podcast continue as a free weekly show. There's one thing I need from you, though. I'm going to do my part so that there isn't some ad that doesn't make any sense for this audience. But if you have time, would you go to podsurvey.com slash myths, that's podsurvey.com slash M-Y-T-H-S, and take a survey? This will help ads you might actually be interested in make their way on the show. It shouldn't take more than five minutes, and for doing it, you can enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. It's completely anonymous, and even if you filled out a survey before, this is a different survey, so please, it would be a very big help for me in the show. The address again is podsurvey.com slash myths. That's podsurvey.com slash M-Y-T-H-S. Thank you so much. Previously on the podcast, King Arthur took the sword from the stone and became High King of England. Some of the petty kings he ruled over revolted, and he put down a rebellion led in part by King Lot. King Arthur had a month-long affair with King Lot's wife. This was even more wrong than simple adultery, because Morgas, Lot's wife, was Arthur's half-sister, Arthur, and basically everyone, still didn't know he was actually the son of King Uther Pendragon, the former High King. Only Merlin knew that. Arthur was out on a hunt trying to forget his bad dreams when his horse died, and we find him stranded in the forest with a weird and horrible beast approaching. The deafening sound of 20 hounds barking emanated from the belly of the beast. It was walking through the forest and coming right for King Arthur, who was by the trunk and in the shade of a large tree. The young king weighed his options. After being thrown from his horse, he wasn't really in any condition to fight, but he couldn't run now. He must try to stay hidden. It was coming closer. It was going to the river. Arthur shifted around the tree maintaining the trunk between himself and the beast, just as he saw the head of the serpent descending to take a drink, and just as it began lapping up the water, the sound of hounds barking stopped. Arthur took a deep breath. He heard it drinking the water from the river with deep, resounding gulps. 
As it stopped, the deafening sound of hounds returned. Then, the beast walked off, following the river away from Arthur. And yeah, I know, I absolutely left you with that cliffhanger last week, making you think Arthur was going to have to fight the questing beast. Sorry about that. Arthur sat back in disbelief that not only had he seen such a wondrous beast, but that it had overlooked him. Despite being sore and alone in the wilderness with his heart still racing, he eventually calmed down. Then, with the sound of the beast completely gone, he began to notice the soft water sounds of the river, the feeling of the warm wind against his face. Sleep took him, and for the first time in a while, he didn't dream. He awoke two men shaking his armor, saying something about his horse. Arthur was confused and reached for his sword, but the man, a knight himself, grabbed his hand. No need for that. I'll just be needing your horse. Arthur, still sleepy, looked to see his servant, holding the horse by the reins, awkwardly. Did you see it? Did you see the beast? The knight asked the king who was still waking up. What? Yeah, it was really weird. The knight asked Arthur which way it had gone, and Arthur pointed. Great, said the knight. Like I said, I'll be needing your horse. You look like you probably have plenty. Well, you... No, you can't have it, Arthur stammered, and thought about getting up, but he had been thrown from a horse at full speed and had been sitting here for the better part of an hour. He hurt all over. Look, the knight said, I've been hunting this beast for a year straight, and I'm not about to give up now. I won't take it by force unless you make me take it by force. Understand? I alone can kill this beast. It's the curse of my family, and I know it's close, so I'm taking your horse. That's all there is to it. Arthur, who really didn't feel like moving right now, waved for the servant to give the knight the horse, so that he could continue his hunt. Arthur could try to pull Rankus King, or could try to fight him, but what did it matter? The stranger was going to keep chasing the beast anyway, it seemed. Besides, they did have a lot of horses with them. Still, for his honor, he couldn't just let the man take his horse without a challenge. Twelve months for one hunt is a long time, Arthur told the knight as he mounted Arthur's fresh horse. When you fail, return to this place, and you'll find me here seeking retribution for the horse you're stealing. The knight chuckled at the man who dared challenge him, yet wouldn't even stand up to do so. He rode off on Arthur's horse. Arthur sat back against the tree, and then he remembered the servant standing by, awkwardly. Go get another horse, Arthur said to the servant, who slumped his shoulders and started, for the second time that day, the long ride back to Arthur's men. Okay, so I'm going to jump out and talk about the questing beast. It's an odd creature with a dark and tragic origin. The beast itself is technically an ancestor of the knight who travels around hunting it. The knight who Arthur met is actually King Pellinor, a king who's supposed to serve under Arthur. He's the father of Percival, who will go questing for the Holy Grail. The questing beast came about because a sister found that she had a little too much love for her brother. She wanted to be with him, to run away together. He, rightfully, was incredibly grossed out by this proposition and said absolutely not. Doubling down on things you should not do ever, the girl made a deal with a demon to get her brother to fall in love with her. The demon said he would love to help. Oh hey, this devil said, 
there is the small matter of compensation for my help. And so the girl agreed to whatever he should ask. You know what they say about making a deal with the devil, it absolutely works out in your favor every time and you should do it without thinking about it. The devil wanted to be with her, just once. And then he could work his devil magic on the brother and the sister could get her reward of this really unsavory incestuous relationship. She agreed to his terms and was, for some reason, surprised that the devil spent the night with her, abandoned her, and then left her pregnant. What's this world coming to when you can't trust a demon to stick to his word? Well, the father noticed the daughter's baby bump and knew that the only man who had been around her had been her brother. In a rage, he questioned his daughter, who broke down crying. It was true, she was in love with her brother. She begged her father for forgiveness, telling him that the baby's father was not her brother. He didn't believe her, and he had the brother arrested. The evidence was clear. It had to have been the brother. The king, with equal parts rage and sorrow, condemned his son to death. The method? The young man was to be tied to a stake and torn apart by wild dogs. Yeah, they don't mess around. The father sat above the pit as the sound of hungry hounds grew closer. His role of king trumped that of father and as such, he had to preside over the execution, even if it was his own son. Then, just as the hounds entered the pit through the tunnel, the king had a vision. It was of the creature that would be born to his daughter. It would be a cursed beast, and wherever it went, the sounds of hounds hunting would emanate from its stomach. It would do this as a reminder for everyone of the brother and how he had died. The woman gave birth to the beast, and because there wasn't a helpful priest there to hit him with holy water, as in Merlin's case in episode 6b, the creature remained a beast. It scrambled off into the forest and has lived there ever since. It was an enduring symbol of shame for King Pelinor and those of his bloodline. It represented his ancestors' desire for incest, filicide, and a pact with the devil all rolled up into one ridiculous beast that traveled the countryside. No wonder he wanted it dead. Apart from the questing beast's really incredibly dark backstory, there's another theory behind it. That it's how people in medieval England might have explained a giraffe. Think about it. The head and neck of a snake, the spotted body of a jaguar, the haunches of a lion, and the hooves of a deer. If you had never seen a giraffe and had to describe it to someone based on animals you had seen, that's actually a very good description. Anyway, that's enough of a detour with the questing beast. It'll pop up again in the stories of King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table. Because, remember, the descendants of King Pelinor are destined to hunt it. While the servant was, yet again, fetching a horse, Arthur was, yet again, sitting by the tree. He was surprised when a young boy, who couldn't have been more than 12 years old, tapped him on his armored shoulder. Arthur was shocked out of thought as the boy asked him what he was thinking about. Arthur told the completely not suspicious boy wandering alone through a deep forest about the questing beast that he had just seen. The boy said Arthur would be deep in thought about that. Arthur was confused. The boy said he knew Arthur very well. He had been friends with Arthur's father. My father? Arthur questioned. You're not more than 12. How could you have known my father? I knew Uther Pendragon quite well, the boy said. I served with him for many years, and I was there when you were conceived. Well, not there, but I helped. Well, not helped, but... But Arthur interrupted him. 
You're saying both that my father was the former king, Uther Pendragon, and that you were there to help him be with my mother. But you're only 12 years old. There's no way you could have been there. This is ridiculous. Yeah, the young boy who was definitely not Merlin said. Ridiculous. It's not as if your wizard friend said that he would come to you in forms you didn't expect and subtly confirm it was him. Nope, it couldn't be that. The young boy rolled his eyes and left. Arthur, still very much not getting it, was glad to see him go. A few minutes later, an 80-year-old man hobbled from the forest, also not at all suspicious that he was traveling alone through the woods. Did you see a child run past you? Arthur asked the old man. The old man rolled his eyes. He didn't answer the question, but said, what the child told you about your father is true, and furthermore, God is not your friend right now. You have lain with your sister and conceived a child, one that will possibly destroy you and all the knights of your realm. What? Arthur said. He could feel the dread creeping up inside of him, that sick feeling he had harbored since he spent the month with Morgas. The dreams, they all made sense now. He wanted to call this old man a fool and a liar, but he knew that he was a prophet. Arthur was disgusted with himself. Who, who are you? Really? The old man asked. I'm Merlin. I told you I would do this. Like, exactly this thing. It was just last episode. Okay, but yes, you slept with your half-sister, and your child by her could be the one that will destroy you and everything you'll ever love. Oh hey, the horses are here. Arthur looked up and saw the servant with not one, but two horses. The servant really did not want to make the trip again, so he led two horses out this time, just in case. And he found that it was good he did, because the king's octogenarian friend, who kind of looked like his middle-aged wizard friend, was coming too. The three rode in awkward silence back to the party and finally continued their journey back to London. Arthur was amazed to learn all about his father and his mother, who turned out to be the Lady Agrain. Word quickly spread throughout the camp that Arthur was now completely the rightful king. Back in London, the drama became unreal. Arthur, for the first time, knew something about his past. He went to his mother, the Lady Agrain, and was shocked to find her being verbally accosted by Ulfin. Remember that he was Uther Pendragon's old wingman, and he was now one of Arthur's trusted knights. He was learning of Arthur's parentage for the first time as well, after word had spread through the camps. The rumor had beat Arthur back to London. Ulfin spat curses at the Lady Agrain. The civil war that had ensued after Arthur pulled the sword from the stone to ascend to the throne. That was all her fault. She could have said something and stopped it immediately. She protested that she had no idea Arthur was her son, though she was happy to learn of him. Really, all of this was Merlin's fault. He was the one who took the baby mere hours after he'd been born. Ulfin said, hey, yeah, it is all Merlin's fault. After which the wizard sat them all down and explained his complex reasoning. How, had Arthur stayed with Uther, he would have been killed when he was only a child. Or if Merlin would have said something during the war, no one would have believed him and they would have just called Arthur a bastard. Just kidding. Merlin doesn't explain himself, and everyone just gives him a pass. As a quick aside, I'm taking this from Mallory's version. In the Vulgate cycle, Arthur's true lineage is, in fact, revealed just before the siege of Carleon, at the start of the war, and people do call Arthur a bastard, and just attack anyway. Actually, this happens in Mallory's version too, but it doesn't get out to everyone. 
and the French Vulgate, he has his little affair with Morgasse in the inn, days before he pulls the sword from the stone back in London. That way, everyone can be kept blameless of knowingly committing incest. They absolutely still committed incest, but like our current story, they didn't know it was incest. Anyway, finally reunited with his birth mother, after over 20 years, Arthur and Egraine cried and hugged. She introduced Arthur to his half-sister, Morgan Le Fay, who made an appearance in the Yvain story in episode 1C. In fact, Egraine went on to tell Arthur that he actually had more half-siblings, like Queen Morgasse, wife of King Lot. Arthur, have you ever met her? A few small things happen next. Generals of the fictitious and legendary Roman Emperor Lucius show up and demand tribute, despite the Western Empire collapsing roughly 40 years prior to the story. Arthur denies the request, sending messengers back to the Emperor empty-handed. As a quick aside, in the episode discussion post on the website this week, I'll discuss the Roman Empire, or lack thereof at this time. Then, a troublesome knight decides to pick a fight with anyone who dares pass. Even the most promising of Arthur's knights returns home in shame. It's then that Arthur remembers his promise to the knight that took his horse, way back when. Arthur rode out alone. It wasn't far, and if he moved quickly, he could be there and back shortly. He ended up meeting Merlin on the road. The wizard cautioned him to take heed. After his deeds at Carlion with Morgas, God was not his friend. But it's okay, he said. They would have a chance to solve that problem soon. Merlin didn't elaborate, though Arthur pressed. Then, after a full day's ride, they arrived at the river. They found the camp of the knight, as well as Arthur's horse nearby. I see you ended up failing to get your beast, Arthur announced, readying for the challenge, and you won't stop harassing my knights. There's a clearing over there, and you can even use the horse. The knight understood the challenge, and they made their way to the clearing. In the clearing, both took out long spears and jousted. Arthur's spear broke immediately, but the knights hit Arthur square in the chest, sending him sprawling off his horse. Arthur struggled to his feet and reached for his sword. It was the one that was enchanted, the one he had pulled from the stone. The knight jumped down from his horse and pulled out his own sword. They began fighting, with blood pouring from each of them, even though they were wearing armor. Arthur was confused. Why wasn't the sword working? Then, on one particularly unlucky strike, it met the knight's sword, and it shattered. The knight smiled. He kicked King Arthur down on the ground and pulled off his helmet. The knight was breathing heavily with a wild look in his eye. That's when Merlin appeared behind him. You don't know what you're doing, the middle-aged wizard said. If you kill him, you'll throw the land back into chaos. That's King Arthur. The knight gritted his teeth. He didn't care. He would kill the king. Merlin rolled his eyes, waved his hands, and the man collapsed, unconscious. Arthur was wide-eyed. So, you killed him? He asked Merlin. No, he's only asleep. He's the biggest, most powerful knight in the world right now, and he'll be awake in three hours, so we should get out of here as fast as we can. We need him alive, and not only will he be a powerful ally for you, but his son, Percival, will be a very important knight in your court. Merlin helped the king to his feet and onto a horse before King Pellinor, the knight, awoke. They went to one of Merlin's hermit acquaintances. The hermit used leeches to heal the king, who, after three days, managed to walk out of the cave. Merlin looked at Arthur's empty scabbard and told him to cast it away. 
Arthur was dismayed that he didn't have the sword anymore. The sword that had won him the throne and showed his royal heritage was now in pieces in a field. Merlin told him not to worry about it. The sword he would receive this day would be the weapon that would be almost as legendary as Arthur himself. Today, he would receive Excalibur. They traveled for another hour, at Merlin's guidance, before coming to a large lake. There, in the middle of the lake, was an arm protruding from the water. In its hand was a sword. Arthur jumped when he noticed a woman standing next to him. That sword is mine, she said, and if you give me a gift when I ask it of you, you shall have the sword. He promised to give her anything she asked, and she told him to take the boat that was tied up nearby and go claim the sword. When the time came, she would come find him and ask a favor of him. Arthur, not really seeing any problem with being bound to give this mysterious sorceress whatever she wanted, whenever she wanted it, tied up their horses and climbed into the boat with Merlin. When they reached the sword, Arthur took it from the hand, which slid back underneath the water. He now had Excalibur. When they returned to the shore, the mysterious Lady of the Lake was gone. The pair rode back and they passed King Pellinore's tents in the same place where Arthur had almost died just days before. Merlin made both himself and Arthur invisible. Arthur was a little angry because he wanted to try out his new sword, but Merlin told him essentially, no, you'll die. Besides, I don't know why I need to tell you again, but he's going to be a powerful ally and his son will help you find the Holy Grail. You're not fighting him. As they rode, Merlin asked Arthur what he valued more, the sword or the scabbard. Arthur told him that he valued the sword more. Obviously, it was named Excalibur, which literally means cut steel, and it could cut steel. But he said to the wizard that the very fact that you asked me such an obvious thing leads me to believe that it was a loaded question. Merlin told him that, basically, his opinion was wrong. Merlin explained that the scabbard was worth ten magical swords. While Arthur wore the scabbard, he wouldn't lose any blood or gain any serious injuries. They returned to London, and things settled down. Arthur resumed the task of putting the kingdom back together, but eventually, Merlin darkened his door with grim news. After an hour of talking to the wizard, Arthur was sick to his stomach. He learned from Merlin in his prophecies that the baby that would grow into the man that would destroy him had been born somewhere in England. Merlin knew that it could be the child Arthur had conceived with his half-sister, but it could be someone else. Merlin only knew that the baby had been born, and they must do something about it. This is no time to be kind and forgiving, like you were when your reign first started, the wizard cautioned. But killing children? Arthur asked in alarm. Merlin told him that being king meant making hard, seemingly impossible choices. If this child survived into adulthood, he would not only kill Arthur, but throw the country back into violence and chaos. The children that Arthur would need to kill now would be nothing next to the children that would die if the land plunged once more into war. Arthur looked at the wizard. It was atrocious, yes, but Merlin's prophecies hadn't been wrong yet. The wizard had helped him rise to king, helped him quell the rebellion, and time after time saved his life. Arthur could have doubts about whether or not the wizard's plan was right, but he didn't doubt for a moment Merlin's power to know the future. He took a deep breath, and asked his old friend what he must do. Merlin explained the plan. First, Arthur would send out courtiers he could trust to keep a secret. 
They would go into the homes of kings, nobles, and knights, looking for children between one and four months of age. They would search all of England for the children, never telling the parents of their age criterion. Instead, parents would simply think their child had been personally chosen by the king. They thought that the child would be fostered in the capital and given the best education and training. They would grow up to be someone special, someone powerful. Most of the parents would be overjoyed, especially from the low-ranking families. King Lot of Orkney would see it as a way to control his loyalty, but he would begrudgingly give up his youngest son, Mordred. All the children would be taken to a ship to take them quickly and safely to London. You know, because you can't have the children of a bunch of nobles just traveling on the road. Something might happen to them. Once the ship was out of view of the coast, Arthur's men on board would jump off and return ashore, leaving the one to four month olds in the hands of fate. They would be adrift on the open ocean, likely dying of thirst within days. And that's how King Arthur and Merlin would solve the problem of the one who would destroy everything. Arthur agreed to it. They could say it was an accident, that the ship had been attacked by pirates or Saxons or something, and lost. It would be a tragedy, but not as tragic as it could be if this kid grew to adulthood. Arthur paused for a moment, and Merlin could see his indecision. The wizard chastised the young king that this wasn't a time to be the weak, forgiving boy that had pulled the sword from the stone, but rather the stern, calculating man that had brought the first piece this land had seen in decades. Arthur sighed and gave the order to trusted men to go and collect the children. Weeks later, waiting at the docks, some of the families had come to see their child off as he or she left to join the household of the king. They beamed with pride that their child had been chosen and watched them sail out of sight toward a no doubt better life. When they could no longer see the shore, Arthur's men rendezvoused with others in a small boat, leaving the larger ship with its sleeping or crying contents to drift off alone. I don't know if they felt any guilt while they did so, but they left the ship. As tragic as it all was, the babies didn't need to wait to starve to death. In mere hours, a storm developed. The ship tossed the screaming, hungry, and terrified infants on the waves until it started heading back towards shore. It moved too quickly toward the rocky coast and the hull was breached. In the driving rain and choppy seas, the ship capsized and all the children spilled out into the water. A miller could see, far off, the ship heading towards the rocks and ran as fast as he could toward the shore. It took him nearly 10 minutes to pick his way down the slick rocks and get into the water, but by that time, it was too late. He could see, below just a few feet of water, the infant swaying in the waves. But then, from inside the torn hull, the miller heard a sputtering, a coughing, and then the full-throated scream of a baby. He picked his way over to the wreckage and pulled out the little boy. From what he could tell, this little boy was the only survivor. He swaddled the soaked baby in his cloak, gave the ship a cursory look for other survivors, and ran back to his warm home and wife to feed the babe and help him recover. Of course, that child was the one. He was Mordred, who would grow up to be the destroyer of Arthur's life and realm. Despite all the horrible effort that went into killing the dangerous child, Mordred had survived. The parents were crushed when they heard the news of the shipwreck, 
and though some blamed Arthur, they kept quiet about it. Merlin ended up as the public face of the tragedy, and most of the blame fell on him for organizing everything. Time moved on, and in a tragic and violent world, it was just one more heartbreaking event. As an aside, the texts, at least the ones from the Middle Ages, don't really comment on this at all. This would come to be known as the May Day Massacre, as it took place on May Day, but no one really comments on the morality of it either way. It's simply stated matter-of-factly, and the story moves on. I used academic discussions to try to frame at least an understandable argument for it, but it's tough. There's the sort of utilitarian argument that if you know Mordred will lead to the suffering and death of hundreds and thousands of people later, then what is your responsibility now? What would you do? It reminds me of a quote by Nietzsche. He who fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. And if you gaze long into an abyss, the abyss also gazes into you. Arthur, in my opinion, became a monster here, and the future he was trying to avoid will still come to pass. It's an incredibly dark portion of the Arthurian legends. It's one that I was very surprised to find in La Morte d'Arthur the first time I read it when I was 12, and being a father now made this portion particularly difficult to write. My opinion, Arthur did a truly horrible thing. But as far as I can glean, at least from the medieval sources, it wasn't to hide his shame or to kill the product of his incest. It was, it seems, to protect his realm in the future. Whatever his reasonings, though, I find it basically impossible to justify what Arthur did. I think it's monstrous, but it was a different time. Deep in King Arthur's dungeons, there was a disgraced former knight. Balin had killed one of King Arthur's cousins, and though it was a fair fight, you couldn't just kill the cousin of the High King and walk away. And if you're having a hard time keeping track of names, no, we haven't seen him before. He's a new character. He had been incarcerated for six months when guards entered and told him he was a free man. He just couldn't stay in London. Balin emerged into the sunlight for the first time in half a year and rubbed his wrists, still bruised and sore from the iron shackles. He was scraggly, and though he'd been given his armor back and a horse, it was in quite a state of disrepair. He looked every bit the part of a shamed former convict. Starting off toward his home in Northumberland, he left London. If he would have been able to enter the castle, he would have seen a commotion. A woman, arrayed in beautiful furs, had appeared with a magnificent sword strapped to her side. She approached King Arthur, who asked, basically, what's a lady like you doing with a sword like that? She told him she was cursed to wear it until she could find someone worthy to pull it out of its scabbard. She was looking for a knight of good deed, in whom there was no treachery, treason, or villainy. Arthur smiled. Step aside, everyone, King Arthur said. I don't know if you've heard of me, he said to the woman, but I'm kind of really good at this sort of thing. I'm kind of a big deal after I did this a few years back and, you know, became king because of it. I'll have that sword off of you in no time. Gripping the handle of the sword in one hand and the scabbard in the other, he looked at the woman, smirked, and pulled, but it didn't budge. Hmm, Arthur said, and gave it another try, this time harder. Still, nothing. 
After several more embarrassing minutes, Arthur, who was now sweating and breathing heavily, finally just gave up. He knew what it was, of course. While he was pulling, the face of Morgoth had flashed in his mind, along with the wreckage of the ship Mortar had been on, and of Merlin saying God was not Arthur's friend because of what he had done. He sat back on his throne and waved the woman aside to allow some of his other knights to try their hand at the sword, though they likely hadn't slept with their half-sisters and definitely hadn't sent a ship of babies to its doom, no one in the court was considered worthy enough to pull the sword out of the scabbard. The woman shrugged. She would just have to find a worthy knight elsewhere. She left London. On the road, about an hour later, she passed a scraggly knight sitting off the road, enjoying the sunlight. Balin, the man who had been released from the dungeons earlier that day, jumped up when he saw the woman. He asked her what she was doing with a sword like that, and she told him all about her search for a worthy knight and all that. But look, she said, I just spent the better part of a morning having large, smelly knights pulling at my waist. You're obviously very dirty and ugly, she said to Balin, and because these are the Middle Ages, I can assume that your ugliness can only mean that you're a terrible person, and very much not worthy of a magical sword. Is it really worth trying, wasting my time, and embarrassing yourself? Balin insisted though, and the woman rolled her eyes. All right, let's get it over with. Balin didn't grab the scabbard, just the handle, and the sword easily slid out. Balin was even more surprised than the woman, who told him that no one in King Arthur's court, including the king himself, could do that. Balin marveled at the blade. It was beautiful. Okay, the woman said, now I'm gonna need that back. Balin looked at her. Yeah, it's a really nice sword. I'm not giving it back. The woman grew serious. No, she said, you need to give it back. If you don't, it will be a curse for you. If you keep it, you will slay your best friend, the person you love most in the world, with it. Balin still refused, dug in, and said that it was given to him by God. He was worthy of it, and he was going to keep it. Anyone who wanted it must take it from him by force. The woman said that she wasn't angry. She was legitimately worried about Balin. Still excited about a magic sword of his very own, however, Balin wouldn't hear her, and so she left him there. She was free of her burden, though Balin could see that she was upset that it had been laid upon another. Balin started picking up his things, but looking at the sword and then back at London in the distance, he had an idea. The whole court was amazed. Balin, someone who had spent the last six months in the dungeons, had been deemed worthy enough to command the sword. Arthur confided that he had misjudged the man, and accepted him back into his good graces. Balin was once more a knight of the king. He was given a squire and lodgings. Days later, Arthur received word from the Lady of the Lake, the one who had given him Excalibur, and he granted her safe passage to his court. She traveled alone, and appearing before the king, she asked him if he remembered what she had given him. He literally said, oh yeah, the sword. I can't remember what you called it though. In a story with a questing beast, this is probably the most unbelievable detail. Who can't remember the name Excalibur? It's probably the best name for a sword ever. The Lady of the Lake smiled. Arthur was about to learn why you didn't make an open-ended promise to a sorceress. She asked if Arthur remembered making an oath to give the woman whatever she asked for. I do remember that, Arthur said, looking at the woman warily. The woman said that there was a girl who came through here recently, 
trying to find someone to pull the sword from her scabbard. Arthur nodded. He remembered. Well, to consider your oath filled, the Lady of the Lake said, I either need that girl's head, or the head of the man who was able to pull the sword from her scabbard. Oh, no, I can't do that, Arthur said. What else can I get you? The Lady of the Lake was annoyed. No, that's my request. That's the price of Excalibur. He had sworn to pay it, and now it was due. She needed the head of the knight, or the girl. Arthur was caught once again in a complex moral choice. He had sworn an oath, and who knows what would happen if he betrayed the sorceress. They were in Arthur's throne room, and while it wasn't quiet, it wasn't exactly bustling. There were many people coming and going and standing around, and one person, even a fully armored knight, could get in without attracting too much attention. That's how Balin had gotten in, after he heard the Lady of the Lake, the person he hated most in the world, was standing before the king. Arthur looked up to see Balin standing behind the sorceress, who still didn't realize he was there. Balin was breathing heavily. His eyes were locked on the woman, and Arthur could see, in the smallest of gestures, his hand moved toward his sword. Balin, Arthur said. Arthur knew that whatever Balin was thinking, it couldn't happen. The Lady of the Lake was Arthur's guest. Hospitality was a very serious thing in the Middle Ages. When the Lady of the Lake heard the name, her eyes widened, and she spun around. Balin yelled, spit flying from his mouth in a rage. He had waited years for this, but he had to act quickly. In one motion, he drew his magic sword and cut off the head of the Lady of the Lake. Her body wilted and collapsed on the floor as her head rolled and thudded to a stop under King Arthur's throne. Arthur's mouth was agape. Did that seriously just happen? She was under his protection and had been killed by one of his knights. Balin stood there, bloody sword in hand. He looked up at Arthur, who was still staring in disbelief, and Balin grabbed the severed head of the Lady of the Lake. With everyone still in shock around him, Balin took two steps backwards and ran out of the hall with a head dangling from his hand. Next week, we'll see why Balin and the Lady of the Lake hate each other so much, and we move far away from this sort of gritty historical drama that has been the Arthur legend so far, and move into a full-on fantasy tale, similar to that of Yvain in episodes 1A through 1C. It's an awesome story with invisible knights, very odd medical remedies, and we'll see one hasty decision by a knight bring misfortune to England for 22 years. I want to say thanks to Andy E, 1989, Adore Artemis, Kiwi Holden, Elizabeth Sons, Satan Fudge, Wise Girl 7, Sammy1991, Jay Dishpandi, Jim Bob9822, Lou Lees, RJ Malander, and LOL is an overused acronym, LOL, for the reviews on iTunes. If you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is the best place, and you can find the show there or in the podcast app at itunes.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing going on on the site. For less than the price of a nose-shaped shampoo dispenser, you can get extra episodes and source pack ebooks that won't remind you of a giant with a sinus infection. If you're interested, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Penangalung from Malaysian folklore. She's a vampire creature, but she's different from anyone I've ever seen. 
She used to be a normal woman, until she was cursed, but we'll go into that. She's just a head that flies around at night. The issue? Well, during the day, she's a normal person in disguise. And at night, the head comes off. But it's not a clean break. When the head leaves the body to go feeding at night, it pulls all of her entrails out with it. So in the night, you'll see a head floating around with lungs, intestines, and other organs just dangling beneath it. Sometimes she can use her organs like tentacles, which is considerably grosser. She's a vampire, so she does enjoy feeding on blood. She has a long, invisible, proboscis-like tongue, it's like that of a mosquito, that she uses to drink the blood of children and pregnant women. At night, she'll perch outside the window of a pregnant woman, and her tongue will snake its way in and attach to the woman. The victims invariably waste away and die. Even if she doesn't mean to hurt you, she can still be quite dangerous. If you're walking along at night, minding your own business, watch out that you don't get a face full of organs from the creature flying just above you. The organs are poisonous to the touch, and you'll suffer painful open sores if a shaman doesn't come heal you. There are ways to protect yourself. You can just weave together a thorny leaf native to Malaysia and loop it around the windows. If she tries to enter, she will snare her dangling organs on the thorns, which... Ow. She can also enter in an infinitely more creepy manner by rising up through the floorboards, trying to get at the new mother and her baby. Thinking of a disembodied head with organs trailing behind it rising up through my floorboards gives me chills. But there's a solution to this method of entry as well. Pineapples. Keeping the prickly fruit on your floor keeps her from entering that way. If you happen to be a little late with a pineapple and they enter, well, you can trap them in the room. If you have the creature trapped, they have one weakness that you can exploit. Machetes. So it's basically a weakness we all have. The way in which a woman can become a Penangalan is by being a midwife who makes a deal with the devil. One stipulation of the deal is that she can't eat meat for 40 days. Of course she does, and thus becomes a vampire monster. The creature will keep a vinegar bath in her house for when she comes home from her feedings. She'll soak her organs in the vinegar to shrink them back down so she can shimmy them back down into her body. During the day, she's normal, but you can tell if a midwife is a penangolan if she won't make eye contact or licks her lips while looking at pregnant women throughout the day. Also, she'll always smell like vinegar because it's really hard to get that out. There are gross and painful ways to kill her, but the most humorous way I found of exposing her was to simply turn her body around when she's out at night. That way, when she comes back, she'll just reattach herself backwards. She apparently won't be able to fix it after sunrise and will be exposed for the vampire that she is. So yeah, if you are pregnant and your midwife stops by and is licking her lips and her head's on backwards, make sure you have plenty of pineapples. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. Check out the website at mythpodcast.com for more background of things from this episode. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. 
Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.